Hello and a warm welcome. I am Armin Trost, Professor for Organizational Behavior at the Furtwangen University in Germany and this is my course on Social Research Methods. Welcome back. Meanwhile, we were talking about two ways how you might collect data as part of social research. One was testing and the other one was simply asking questions by maybe using questionnaires, running interviews and the like. And now I would like to share with you two more methods of data collection. One is the systematic observation and the other one is the content analysis. So let's start with systematic observation. So sometimes you want to observe people. Um, this is what we do in social research very often. We observe human beings. Uh, we don't observe animals, we do not observe clouds, we do not observe <laughs> uh, plants, we do not observe stones, we, we observe people. Huh? Human behavior. Um, and that's pretty complex. And I, I will show you what the challenges will be when doing so. Maybe I can start with a simple example, another simple one, but a very uh, famous example. Um, in 1971, this great Philip Zimbardo conducted an experiment that became known as the Stanford Prison Experiment. So, while the semester break, a couple of male students uh, took part in an experiment, and then they were randomly assigned into two roles. One was the, were the guards, and one were the prisoners. And the idea was that they, they have reshaped the faculty facilities into a prison. So, <laughs> really. So, there were really prison cells um, and all alike. So, the, the, the role of the guards was, to put it simply, it was a little bit more complex. A very readable book, by the way. You, you should really uh, 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 read it, uh, The Lucifer Effect. Uh, it's, or, or you can also watch this movie, uh, the standard uh, Stanford Prison Experiment. It's it's every psychologist should see this movie. It's it's excellent, really. It's pretty close to to what Zimbardo uh, has described in his own book. So the role of the guards were to make sure that the prisoners follow some rules. That was it. That was the only task. Uh, one rule, for instance, was that the people should not call each other by their names, but just by their numbers. They had numbers tagged on their prison-like cells. You know. That was one rule. And I don't want to go too deep into this experiment. The question was, uh, what, 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 ha what is the effect of taking over roles? What is the effect of having power over other people? Uh, what happens then? Things like de-individuation uh, and the like uh, was also examined. So a lot of things, uh, psychologically spoken, extremely interesting experiment. Um, so the interesting thing here uh, in our regard was that these, these guards, especially the guards, not so much the prisoners, but the guards were constantly observed. Um, there were cameras, of course, but there were also... Um, one-way or two-way mirrors. So you know these mirrors where from one side they are sort of like windows, from the other side they serve as a mirror. So 
Philip Zimbardo and his colleagues were capable to, to constantly observe the guard's behavior. And this is a typical example for observation. You observe people. And now I will come back to this example, but whenever we talk about observation or to be more precise about systematic observation, there are different types of observation. And that's the first interesting thing here. Sometimes observation is open and sometimes observation is hidden. What's the difference? When observation is open, the people who are observed know that they are observed. Okay? That's the only thing. And that has the, the danger of reactivity we were talking about. this. When people know that they are observed, they might not show their natural behavior. Because they, for, for multiple reasons, we don't have to go too deep into this. Okay? When people are, do not know that they are currently observed, that they actually take part in a study, um, they might rather show their natural behavior. And this is what we want. Right? Um, so, open, hidden. Um, the, sometimes observation is uh, participating. That means that the, the researcher, they, they interact with the subjects. They are part of them. So sometimes we have this. Um, sometimes when you do research about the culture of, let's say, a company or a tribe, <laughs> something like this, <laughs> you... You, you become part of it, you, 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 you shadow these people, you spend time with them, you are a part of them. Open or hidden, that, that's not the point here. It's not the question of whether the people know that you observe them or not. That was the first dimension. This dimension is just about, do you actively interact with the people or, or don't you? And if, if, you, if you do not participate, like, like in the Stanford Prison Experiment, Philip Zimbardo did not... Ah, now I must be careful. Yeah? He, he, do, during the day, he was not participating, but at the end, he was participating. Interesting question. <laughs> I got confused. Philip Zimbardo played a role in that game. And, and the funny thing is, that's why I'm struggling. Is, and if he found out, and he, is, he writes about this in his book, is excellent. He found that he played a major role in this entire thing because... He was the, so to speak, the, the director of the prison. He had much power over the guards. So, so he was seen like this. So to some extent he was participating, but in the daily behavior of the guards, he was not participating. He was not there. He did not spend time in that prison. Yeah? Um, so I would say to a large extent it was not participating even though Philip Zimbardo interacted with the guards at some point of times of course yeah. right um, this is one another thing right uh, participating non-participating so when you when you write about your study and you have done a kind of systematic observation, it would be good if you name it that way. Was it a participating or non-participating, hidden or open? And here's a third differentiation. Sometimes participation, uh, observation, sorry, participation happens in the field. What is that, field? When you, when you use the term field in social research, we do not think of <laughs> a field. <laughs> 
<laughs> in nature. Um, like an acre or so. When, when, we, when we use the term field in social research, we, we mainly think of the real world, right? Um, or you could put, put it that way. You do the observation in a setting that, that would exist even though you would not do the study. Okay? So, for instance, when you observe people on the street, and you can observe a lot when you watch people on the street, that's the field. When you observe children in the classroom, it's the field. Okay? The opposite of field is laboratory. And the Philip Zimbardo experiment, the Stanford prison experiment, was an observation in a laboratory because the whole setting was created just for the purpose of this study. And this setting would not exist when the study would not exist. <laughs> so that was a laboratory. So um, field, laboratory. Okay? So, so we better are clear on what we actually are doing, right? So, um, now, here's the more important thing. When you observe people, then it's a case where a human being is observing another human being. One monkey is observing another monkey, so to speak. No offense, please, but is it possible that a human being can observe another human being in a very objective way? Is that possible? At least it's extremely possible, uh, ex extremely difficult. And why is that? To to, to, to make this a little bit more clearer, there was a test that was invented very early in the, in the, in the 20th century. It was actually, it was in the, in the 40s uh, by Murray. Uh, this test was called the, um, the thematic apperception test. TA, we also only say TAT in, in, uh, in, in, in psychology. And what is that? It's a projective test. What does that mean, projective? Whenever you see something, uh, what you see depends on the viewer and not so much on what you see. So, different people see different things in different things. Right? When different people observe different people, or, or one and the same person, let's put it that way, Different people observe one and the same person. They will see different things. And why is that? It's because people are different. People have different ways of looking at things. So Murray has developed a test based on exactly this idea. So what, what he did is he, he showed the subjects different pictures, just pictures, drawn pictures, Maybe on one picture there is a, is, a, is a couple, a man and a wife, and it's a kind of 
I would, I would say, but maybe you don't see it that way. You would not see it that way. It's a very emotional situation. In another picture, there is a train leaving a station and somebody is crying. Oh, I think it's crying. In another scene, there is a rabbit on an acre. <laughs> uh, on another scene, there is one woman watching another woman from a hidden position. Uh, in another picture, there is uh, an older man and a younger man having some kind of debate. So, in your task, in this test, and that's amazing, I did it myself, really. I learned a lot about myself, by the way. I don't share what. <laughs> uh, is different people, and in the task is that you have to tell a story based on the picture. That's the idea. You have to tell a story based on the picture. You see the picture of this woman watching another woman from a hidden perspective, and now you have to tell a picture. You see a man having a debate, an older man having a debate with a younger man. Tell, tell a story. What do you see in this picture? And when you, when different people tell different stories, they do it because they see different things in one and same picture. And why do they see different things? Because they differ. And, and that's exactly what we name subjectivity. That's subjective. Seeing different, what you see, what one observes, depends on the observer and not so much on the person you observe. That's the original meaning of being subjective. And this is what we don't want. Right? So what we want instead in social research method is that when different researchers see the behavior of different people, they come always to the same conclusion. Then it's objective. This is what we want. Okay. And uh, what, what, are, what are the challenges now? Mainly, one challenge is that when you, when you observe another person, you cannot not interpret. What does that mean? You see another person saying something. You see another person showing some body language. And we cannot, we cannot just see the body. We, they, we always see the language as well. Okay? It's very hard for us to just see the behavior. When we see another person and there are tears in their in the face, we, we assume this person is sad. And we cannot just see, oh, tears in the face. Mm, interesting. Mm, interesting. Tears. Mm, what's that mean? Sad. Of course, you see, you cannot, not, you cannot not interpret this as sadness. Yeah. You cannot. And very often we see what we expect. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a fundamental psychological uh, idea. And, and those who are a little bit deeper in psychology, you, you know this. You, you, you only see what you know. You only see what you, what you expect anyway. So, um, and we always expect behavior from others, right? We always see this. So, so uh, 
I mean, for instance, when it comes to social judgment, I mean, that, that's something that really applies in that matter. Uh, meaning one person is, is looking at another person and makes sense of it. So if you have a, a certain stereotype of specific people, right, uh, could even be racistic. Yeah? So if you think that white people, white old men behave like this, and you expect this because this is your stereotype about old white man, you're going to see it. You're going to see what you expect, and you will interpret behavior so that, the, that, so that your interpretation goes along with your prejudice, with your stereotype, with the social scheme that you, 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 you have. Right. Um, right. If there's a punk yeah, walking across the street and you think punks are lazy, whatever you see with this punk, is the outcome will always be, look, again, here you sit again, lazy. Lazy, you see it? Because you expect it. But maybe this punk is not lazy. This punk is working, actually. But you don't see it. I can have thousands of examples. Um, you have to be absolutely clear and I will come to the practical implications in a minute. You have to be absolutely clear about the behavioral behaviors that you want to observe and also classify. So when Philip Zimbardo were watching uh, the guards in this artificial prison, he had some kind of schemes. And he knew exactly what, he, what, what kind of behavioral patterns they want to, uh, want to track or want to document or want to record. Um, so, for instance, there is a prisoner resisting the order of a guard. Now, as Philip Zibardo knew, there are maybe three or four different behavioral patterns that a guard might show. And he knew this a little bit in advance. But then he looked, does the guard show behavior A, B, C, or D? Right? So, having, having this kind of structure is extremely important, and, and we will we'll come to this. Um, very often... A challenge is in practice that when you observe people in the field, that the behavior you want to observe happens in a very short period of time. So, for instance, uh, you want to observe, what should I take? Uh, you want to observe children on the, on the schoolyard. And you want to observe their interaction. Whatever you want to observe. Yeah? That can, can happen, that, that happens very quick in a very particular moment. And one second later, the behavior is already gone. So sometimes you have to be very, very quick in your observation, yeah, very, very fast. And, and still, your observation is supposed to be precise. So better be prepared, okay? Uh, it's always good to have more than one observer um, because once you have more observers, you can increase reliability um, because the individual error, the individual bias maybe might, might be zeroed out. So having more, more observer than one, and then you really have to calculate, and I will come to this point later, you have to calculate the inter-rater reliability, or what we also name objectivity. We were talking about this in a, in a previous session when we talk about validity, objectivity, and reliability. You really have to calculate this. Different researchers really must come to the same conclusion when observing independently. Otherwise, the way they observe is not reliable. And something that is not reliable cannot be valid. And if something is not valid, go home, 
Forget about your study. Okay? Um, there is another thing, and that is pretty similar to, to what I have explained with the pretest when we were talking about uh, questionnaires. Human behavior is so, so diverse, so, so full of uh, variety that in reality you will find much more behavioral patterns, ways of behavior that you would ever expect in advance. So when you, when you observe children in the schoolyard, for instance, when you want to observe consumers on a, in a store, when you want to observe whatever, as I said, it's, it's very important that you be clear about what you want to observe. Otherwise, you will be overwhelmed. You have to have a clear structure about what you want to observe. But in the end, when you go into the field especially, and you see the behavior of people, you will find much more behavioral patterns than you ever have expected in advance. So be prepared about this variety of things. Uh, the consequence of this, and I will summarize this in the end of this episode, is that always test what you're going to do. Always. Go out. You want to observe people in the field? Okay, go out and do it. Be prepared and check and test whether your way of observing things really uh, 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 works well. Okay? So, another thing is, sometimes when you have a participating observation, uh, a participating observation means that you interact with the subject, um, then there might be kind of reactivity. The subject reacts on you. You cannot not affect others when you interact with them. You cannot not. Really not. You cannot. Right? So, uh, and especially it's, it's difficult when the subject knows that they are take part in the study. So it's a, when it's an open participating um, uh, observation, that's, that's very difficult. Because then you really have to make sure that you do not affect the subject's in a way so that it supports your hypothesis. If you expect a certain behavior on the side of the subjects and you interact with them, you might, even on an unconscious level, in a subliminal level, you might influence them. And at the end you get the results you expected. But that's not a good way of doing things. Okay, so this can go on and on and on. What, what I want to tell you here is that systematic observation is damn difficult. Really, it's, it's really, really difficult. Uh, when you do something like this, I like it. I, I found it absolutely cool. And, and observation very often is the better way of collecting data than always just sharing questionnaires. Oh, we already have too many questionnaires sometimes, I feel. So, so observation is absolutely cool, but very, 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 very difficult. Okay? So here is another uh, method of data collection, which is the content analysis. 
And what is that? In this case, content analysis, you do not observe people, but you use existing material to interpret behavior of people. Okay? So what does that mean? Um, I, 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 maybe I give you uh, one or two examples. A nice example um, I found recently was a study that was conducted in Germany about how kids see their future. Okay? Um, so you cannot, you cannot share a questionnaire with kids. That's, that's difficult. I, they don't have fun with reacting to questionnaire. Maybe you could, but it's difficult. It's not a very... I would, I would say a questionnaire is not the most appropriate method to collect data about behavior and experience of kids. It's too boring, too adultish. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to say this. Um, so the researchers, they took another route. So they asked the children to write an essay, a short essay, and the title of the essay was My Future. Can you imagine this? Children writing an essay, one page, about my future. Then you take this 100 essays. So now you have content. Yeah? This is not observation. This is not questionnaire. This is not testing. Now you have content, and you analyze the content. And this is what we name content analysis. Right? But now you have this stack of essays. How do you analyze this? How, how do you do this? Right. Um, again, it's very, very difficult. Uh, you, can, you can look at some terms that appear. You can look at some typical structures, some typical ideas that, that, that show up in this, that you find in these essays, um, things like this. Um, you know, I, 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 I worked a lot in human resource management in my career, and I very often heard the sentence from CEOs saying, uh, people are our most important asset. <laughs> and you also find this sentence very often on the websites of many companies. People are our most important asset. Blah, 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 blah. Yes, okay, I did not believe this, that it's really true. So um, we know that... Uh, those, those companies uh, who are on the capital market, they have to publish an annual report. So what we did in a project team was we collected uh, the, all the annual reports of the biggest companies in Germany. It's like a Fortune 500. Okay? So we had all the annual reports. It was a, a huge stack of reports. And we analyzed all these reports. And the question was, what is the relevance of people in the annual reports? When, when people are the most important asset, really, then we would expect that the people, the employees, yeah, that they somehow appear in the annual report. What do we do with the employees? What are their career opportunities? What is our health management? What is our training activities? What is, I don't know what. Uh, what is the company's strategy to hire new people? What is the onboarding strategy? What is, how is uh, employee satisfaction in this organization? How does the company make sure that the leadership quality is appropriate? All those things. So we 
we analyzed the content of these annual reports. So again, this is not questionnaire, this is not observation, this is not testing, this is analyzing available content. Okay. Also, you can analyze the career websites of many companies looking, okay, how do they present themselves? You can analyze, um, you can analyze advertisements yeah, of various companies. You can analyze uh, commercials uh, regarding different things. Um, um, I recently uh, came across a study about uh, uh, gender discrimination in in commercials. Yeah, so one student had to watch many many commercials and analyze these commercials on a very 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 structured systematic way. So again, this content analysis, yeah, looking at these commercials, looking at the essays, looking at the career websites, looking at uh, um, what did I mention? All these things, yeah. You do not just read and then think, hmm, what was there? No, you really have a very structured approach in analyzing all those things. That's essential. Yeah, that's content analysis. Really important. And you can do a lot of wonderful things based on this because also in times of the internet, there are so many, so many information available. When you can do content analysis based on the, on the Facebook presence of people, can you imagine this, how many great studies you could do just with the information you get on social media? I mean, compare different uh, Instagram accounts. You can compare, you can analyze all sorts of things. And again, it's not questionnaire. It's not, it's not observation. It's an analyzing content that exists. Okay. So observation, systematic observation, content analysis. So let me finish with some general recommendation that apply for both, okay? And this is, goes pretty much along with what I already have said with um, developing a questionnaire. Yeah? Be clear about what you want to observe. That's the first thing, okay? It's exactly the same with uh, when, when you do a questionnaire. Uh, be clear about the variable you want to measure. Uh, be clear about the theoretical concept. What's in, what's out? What is it what you want to observe? What is it what you analyze and what, what not? And then when you, when you analyze behavioral patterns, yeah, be clear in advance what are these behavioral patterns that you want to observe. Yeah? Really, you have to anticipate in that regard. Right? Or, or when you content analysis, what is it what you specifically want to look at? Are these specific sentences? Are these specific words? Are these specific ideas? Are there specific lines of argumentation? And what is it? Yeah? Be very, very specific on what you want to observe. And this can be extremely complex. So one recommendation I can give you here is you sometimes can also work with prototypes. Prototype. So, uh, prototypes are typical cases, typical behaviors. It's more than just an individual single behavioral pattern. This is a cluster of behavioral patterns. So, for instance, when you, you, want, to, you want to observe 
children on a schoolyard and you want to see uh, the level of interaction, right? So because you assume, okay, if there are some people who do not uh, interact so much and there are other kids who interact like hell, you know? So you want to analyze this. Maybe your question is, is there a relationship between social status and social interaction? Maybe there is one. So now when you observe social interaction of kids, that's extremely complex. I mean, you, you, you can't imagine what happened with kids. They, it's crazy. They have so many behaviors. But now you still want to say, okay, I want to observe social interaction. What do you concretely observe? Have some criteria, have some things. And now, based on those criteria that you might, might uh, anticipate and describe in advance, you might be able to prototype different behaviors, saying, okay, what we see is there are four levels of social interaction. This is the first level of interaction. This is the silent guy. So these are typically children who just stand alone, don't talk, don't play with others, and they do this over a long period of time. So this is prototype number one. Prototype number five, now let's go to the other extreme, are children who constantly talk to other people. They always talk, and they, they talk, and when they talk to another, they very much dominate the other person. So it says are very, very active and never stand alone, always talking and dominating other people and also changing the different people. They, so this is the other extreme. So you, you describe this prototype based on various uh, criteria. So now you have prototype one to five and you have some, some between. Now when you observe kids, sometimes that will make your life easier. You just look at, okay, is that prototype one, two, three, four, five? That helps to reduce the complexity. But be careful, really. These criteria must be clear in advance, but prototypes very often help. The same is, by the way, with, uh, with content analysis. So that you summarize things a little bit, especially with observation when you sometimes have to, to, to make a judgment in a few seconds. And it's very often easier to have these kind of, um, of prototypes. You must have something, and that's an important term, a coding system or a coding scheme. And that's the equivalent to the, to the questionnaire. Right? A coding scheme, coding system is something that you have available while you observe the people. This is where you make notes, where you have the behavioral patterns ready, where you instantly can track the behavior of individual people. Right? You have to have this scheme and this tool. And once you start doing uh, observation, systematic observation, or content analysis, as I already mentioned, make sure that you do it in groups of two, right? And then start doing things individually first. So you have two observers or two analysts doing a content analysis, and they do things independently. So maybe <clears throat> when I go back to this example of the annual reports, okay, have two researchers, two analysts, who independently analyze, let's say, 10, 15 reports first, and then you compare the results. And hopefully, uh, these results correlate. And this correlation tells you how the inter-rater reliability is. So if you forgot about inter-rater reliability and so, go back to the episode about validity, reliability, and objectivity. I just, I just explained it there. So really, it, it, it's, it's so, so, so essential. Also, in my content analysis that I've done, I always have this kind of checkpoint where we have many researchers, many analysts, and they observe things. And then we have a, 
check and say, okay, now let's check inter-rider reliability. Is that, is that okay? And it should be at least 0.7 or 0.8. If you don't achieve a level of 0.7, 0.8 reliability on observation or content analysis, you should not start the study, really not. Make sure that, that you are there already. If you aren't there already, it's very important that you either optimize your coding scheme, your coding system, because maybe that's still not precise enough, or you train the observers or the analysts better. One of the two applies here, right? So, okay. Uh, so, do this. And when you, when you have done an observation, especially in an in a open observation, when you really have observed people in an open way, either in the field or in a laboratory. In a laboratory, very often it's open. I mean, why should a subject be in a laboratory uh, without knowing that he or she will be observed? I mean, that's why they are there. But sometimes, if you have this one-way one mirror, people do not know that they are observed, but I mean, they can expect this, okay? But now, you have subjects in a laboratory, let's say open, open uh, observation. What you very often can do is you make a deep brief. And that's, that's really reasonable. I mean, think of, again, Philip Zimbardo. What he did was, after, after the experiment was over, and he had to stop this experiment much earlier than, than, than it was planned, because uh, really, I mean, uh, that turned out to be such a dangerous experience, especially for the prisoners, really. Uh, they, they really got worried that some prisoners got killed. Really, it was a, a, all, all run crazy. It was, ah, that's a... Brutal experiment. <laughs> so he had to stop this experiment and then he made a debrief with the guards. And the interesting thing, it's a kind of interview, right? And in that case, it was a group interview. So he had all the guards sitting around the table and then he asked a different guard, hey guard, we observe, we observe that you have behaved this way or this way. Why do you think have you behaved in that way? And then you gain some additional information that might help you to interpret the behavior of your subject. Or when we think of the Milgram experiment, yeah, the famous Milgram experiment, yeah, um, which is, you know, you, you probably remember this. It's the experiment where you have a learner and a teacher, and the learner is supposed to learn. And when the learner does a mistake, he, he or she will receive a punishment by the teacher uh, through an electric shock. And the electroshock was fake. And this experiment was about uh, the influence of authority on people, right? So the experimenter was the authority telling the teacher, you have to punish this person. And then they just looked how far they went. Of course, all the teachers who were the real subjects in that experiment, they were observed. Again, this was a... Um, this was uh, 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 observation in the laboratory. So, and you see all kind of different behaviors. Um, for instance, there was one subject who was laughing. Really, I mean, this 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 subject. They, he punished another man, and he hear the other man crying. You know, I mean, that was an actor. It's not really crying. It was from a tape. But the, the teacher must must. Must, must assume that he really punishes another person. And the subject was laughing. You know? 
200 volts. <laughs> and then uh, Dr. Milgram was asking, he said, why were you laughing? Why were you laughing? Because that's a very strange, unexpected behavioral pattern that you found here. And debrief can be very helpful. So, okay. So, systematic observation, content analysis. That's, that's for the moment. And I think that were all the, 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 the methods that we use in social research. There might be some more about, but these are the most important ones. Yeah? Testing, asking questions, observing, content analysis. So that's for the moment. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. See you next time.